he wahine toa no te arawa. I mahia tēnei whaia i te ao Māori, te reo me ona tikanga. Kai aia anō te ao o ngā mahi arehia me tāne rore. Nō reira haere e Tiny Morrison, haere ki o mātua tipuna. He iti te matakahi, pakarurikiriki te tōtara. A wedge may be small, but it can fragment the tōtara. Ina iwi o te motu e nga parikara nga rangatēnei te mihiki a tatakatoa, ko Maraia Rakraku tōku ingoa. And I'm Justine Murray. Welcome to the weekly series Tiahika, offering up another perspective on Māori issues and stories. The Tamaki brothers have been synonymous with tourism in Rotorua. And as the story goes, Mike Tamaki had the idea and his brother Doug Tamaki had to raise the capital. And it was Doug Tamaki's Harley Davidson that was eventually sold to buy their first 16-seater bus. Yep, in the early days it was the sharky-wearing, black-jean-clad, long-haired brothers Mike and Doug that went on to create the award-winning Tamaki Tours and later on the Tamaki Māori Village. And last year the venture turned 21, a milestone you might say. I'm with Mike Tamaki in Christchurch talking about the early days. And it's obvious that Mike has had enough of how Māori culture and tourism is perceived and he's ready for change. I'm sick and tired of doing hangi and concerts and dance and singing. You know, we Māori get up on stage, we dance, we sing, we wiggle our ass, you know, <laughs> people pay us some money, you know. It's like paying monkeys peanuts on stage, you know, and if they want us to dance and sing anymore, throw us some more peanuts and we'll dance and sing some more. To have the H or not to have the H? That's a debate still raging around Whanganui or Whanganui. And it's also something that perplexes law lecturer Mamari Stevens, who in developing and working on what will eventually be a Māori legal lexicon, rediscovered the value of Māori language resources. All I'm saying is that the advent of something like the Legal Māori Archive is very important because um, it gives us a resource to use. And we can no, we can no longer ignore Māori language sources to the way to the extent that I think we have been in the past. And researchers, no matter who they are, Pākehā Māori, nor here, um, cannot afford any longer to ignore those types of resources. All coming up in this week's edition of Te Ahika. It's a story that's become synonymous with leather jackets and motorbikes. We're talking about the Tamaki Brothers, Mike and Doug, the brains behind tourist attractions Tamaki Tours and Tamaki Village. Based in Rotorua, Tamaki Tours involves a bus ride to the various geothermal attractions in the region with driver commentary before arriving at a village. Back in the days, Mike and Doug were known as the Billy T. James of Tours, which is a compliment I just seen since Billy T. James is one of the funniest Māori comedians Aotearoa has ever produced. Now, the village has been built to resemble a traditional Māori pa, surrounded by native bush. Tourists can walk through the village and observe village action, whether that's actors performing the poi, playing games, 
all while a staff member gives a history lesson. After all of that, it's kai time, and while the tourists eat their hangi, they are entertained by a concert, all with the purpose of giving an authentic Māori experience. And it's been the recipe for success for the last 21 years, as I discovered, when I met up with Mike Tamaki, who, since 2005, has been running the South Island branch of the Tamaki Tours been going now in for Christchurch. Good, uh, 21 years, so roles sort of change and so do titles. You know, I think you, you sort of kind of lose titles. Not respect, but you lose titles after a little while, and everybody just kind of automatically knows who you are and what you do. Hmm. So, yeah, in terms of, in terms of roles now, yeah. um, well... Um, my my major focus is on uh, new business development. So I go out putting together new uh, new experiences, new businesses, going into new regions, and that's not just restricted to um, New Zealand. So I've been doing a lot of travelling offshore, developing um, experiences wow. and businesses offshore as well. Yeah. Let's go back 21 years. Um, well, 21 is often a milestone, you know. In Māori, we have 21st. So does it feel like it's been a 21 years? <laughs> Uh, no, it hasn't actually. It's um, it doesn't. It, it the time has just gone so fast. I can't believe it. Uh, we the company is actually going through a, a major, uh, you know, change at the moment. We're sort of really um, starting to lift the game into a whole new arena, wow. and that requires rebrand, um, just a refocus in terms of which direction we're going in and what we're doing, and. Uh, and of course, you know, change always—it's always discomforting uh, for a lot of people. But um, yeah, after 21 years, you know, it's um, it's it's time to do that. And so yeah. we're kind of right in the middle of that at the moment now. Tell us um, the infamous um, Doug um, sold his Harley Davidson. Let's just recap on what happened 21 <laughs> years ago. We sitting there, you know, 21 years ago, going, oh, "Hey, let's do this." Or how did that come about? Yeah, um, I'd, I'd kind of been working in the tourism industry for. Uh, three or four years before that, um, before that day, anyway, and uh, yeah, I, can't, I, I suppose it's like anything here in New Zealand. You know, we've the thing is with New Zealand, we've got we're a country that is full of people with such brilliant, amazing ideas in terms of business development or very entrepreneurial, but uh, no money. <laughs> and that's you know, it's a, you get a lot of other countries that got a lot of money and uh, usually very weak business ideas. So I guess. Um, the, I guess the advantage to that or the positive side of it is that we produce really great thinkers in terms of how we make things work and I guess that's where the whole personality and character of that whole number eight wire sort of mm. thing comes from in, in us Kiwis. I had a great business idea to develop a, a tourism operation. It was quite simple. It was just with a small 16-seater minibus and <laughs> going around and visiting different sites around Rotorua. And, uh, but I had no money you know, to start off with. So it's quite funny. I did go to um, the banks. banks, you know, yeah. And I, just, I so remember, you know, back in those days, they had the um, the Yes Bank ad that was on TV. I don't know if you remember the Yes Bank ad. No, maybe you don't. Mm. But they were kind of like, you know, I was sitting there on my couch watching the Yes Bank ad, and I thought, oh, oh that's cool, you know, let's go down and see the Yes Bank people. <laughs> Expecting uh, a yes? Yeah, and they'll say, yeah, they'll say yes, you know, because <laughs> they're the Yes Bank people. <laughs> So I did. I kind of, you know, wandered down there and I sort of drafted up a bit of a proposal. It only took up a half, you know, half an A4 size piece of paper. It was more or less, um, dear Mr. Bank Manager, you know, (laughs) any chance of getting a $1,600 loan off you to buy a 16-seater Japanese minibus, you know, love Mike. 
Because I was actually brought wow. up in Tokoroa, and I mean, you know, um, in Tokoroa, if many people know Tokoroa back in the 70s, it was, it was always hitting the headlines as being quite a, a, a wild town. Um, and, and it kind of was, you know, so I spent sort of two years at secondary school and I thought that's enough education time to bail out. And if there's one thing that they did teach us, you know, you start a letter with a, a dear and you end it, end it with a love, you know. <laughs> so, Not a you sincerely so, you or know. anything. <laughs> yeah, or regards, you know, we we're kind of a little difficult sort of spelling the word regards. It always just ended up like a mudguard. But anyway, <laughs> I remember taking the proposal down to the bank manager and, um, and you know, uh, of course the Yes Bank said no. Maybe it had a little bit to do with the way that I looked. I don't know, back in those days, we still had long hair, you know, shades on and hobnail boots and bush singlet and black jeans. <laughs> I don't think I'd want to give anybody a line that looked like that, maybe. But that's what we, you know, I mean, yeah, that's what we look like. We, I mean, we were from Tokoro. We, you know, spent eight or nine years working in forestry, you yeah. know, and I spent six of those years working in the hoo-hoos in Tokoro. So, um... Yeah, we were turned down there, so I sort of kind of went and saw Doug, my brother, and he had no money either, but he had a, he had an old Harley-Davidson motorcycle and this thing, you know, it was an old shovel, um, if anybody <laughs> knows Harleys. And it was a big block, but, uh, I mean, you know, he used to, I mean, he, you know, he loved his bike and he used to keep it cleaner than, than his face. <laughs> actually, I think he used to actually probably probably wiped it with his face. Because <laughs> a good night. But, yeah. It took me three months to convince him to... To loosen it's a lot it, of biggie, eh? Oh, it was, mate. I'll tell you, it was fair grovelling. And come on, Doug, you know, this tourism idea is a good idea. We we need to get into making some money, you know. And So um, after three years, we're off up to Auckland to trade the Harley in for a 16-seater Japanese minibus. It only got us a deposit on the bus. And I remember back then, you know, we had to um, delay the repayments of the bus because... You know, I knew that we weren't going to be able to make the first three months payment on the bus anyway. Mm. So I delayed the repayments by about three months to give us a bit of a break yeah. in terms of getting the business up and going. And so, yeah, that's that's the story. The bus, the bike was gone. The bus was here, and wow. we were kind of like starting off. But I, you know, it's quite funny. I remember coming down from Auckland with this bus, and it only had one seat in it, and that was the uh, driver's seat. So I remember letting Doug drive the bus you know and that made him feel good about the fact that you know he just lost his bike you know so yeah you got to keep the inspiration going you know actually you know i learned my first business lesson there you know that when you're starting up a business you've got to be inspirational enough to be able to inspire somebody else to make the sacrifice to fulfill your dream mm. <laughs> yeah and that's what you were doing to your yeah pretty much to your brother but so, yeah, I remember coming on the way back and I was sitting on the floor on the other side looking out over the dash of this bus and we got to about Ngarawahia and I said to Doug, don't worry about it, man, you know, if it doesn't turn out, you can always turn it into a camper van and you and your family can live in it. <laughs> <laughs> I think I learned my second business lesson right about then, you know, if you've inspired your brother to give up his prized possession, whatever you do, don't throw a word of doubt in there and kind of like the bus came to a screaming halt right about outside the pub in Ngarawahia, if you all know where that is. Yes. And, uh, yeah, we sort of, the door bowled open and we kind of standing on the street arguing and it ended up in a bit of a rumble. But it kind of didn't look any different because, you know, like, you know, rumbles outside and got a hotel take place pretty often. Did you blend in? <laughs> yeah, it just kind of blend in. And so, <laughs> climb back in the bus and off back down the road of room. 
Yeah, and that's kind of like where it all started. So your brother was quite angry with you when you said that, when you when you <laughs> planted that doubt in his mind. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he kind of like, he got a little worried, you know. Come on, Mike, you know, you said this thing was going to work, man. I just lost my bike, you know. And so, yeah, so I quickly said, oh, no, Doug, you know, it's going to work, you know. You'll, no, you'll never look back, you know. You'll better buy another Harley and, yeah. hey, come on, man, let's just get this thing going. So when the Tamaki brothers finally got their first bus, they first had to overcome many hurdles in the process, including their appearance. I remember parking the bus outside the information centre, you know, we still had the same black jeans on and bush singlet and hobnail boots and sharky shades, you know. And by the way, the sharky shades, you know, weren't because of low self-esteem. I think we sort of <laughs> we sort of got over that, you know. But the, the uh, yeah, and I mean, because we had a brochure put out there and it basically had on the back of it, join the hard case boys from Tamaki Tours. And so here we were standing outside the bus looking like a hard case guy. And what we had to watch, you know, uh, we learned a lot. But I mean, one of the things we had to watch was terminology. For instance, when you put in your brochure, you know, join the hard case boys, here in New Zealand, hard case means funny, fun-loving, yes. humorous. Well, in England, it means you just got out of prison. So we had a lot of palms walking on the other side of the road, you know, with (laughs) our brochure in their hand looking at us. We're looking back at them. And they're kind of like, you know, well, let's not go near those hard case boys, you know. (laughs) Well, you know, we were the new kids on the block, you know. And back then, uh, it was always predicted that Māori businesses would never last long. I think it kind of still is that way today. And we all sort of get tarred with the same brush, you know. Unreliability, um, uh, inconsistency. There's all those kind of things, you know. And... Which, which were kind of, you know, though, you know, a lot of those opinions were, were very founded. You know, I mean, they were quite true, because there, because there were a lot of Māori groups uh, in, in, you know, in, in the private sector who, who were doing, you know, a lot of letting, mm. uh, letting, you know, letting groups down. You know, in terms of not turning up and stuff. So, mm. um, you know, there was there were they were really hard, you know, hurdles to to jump. And I remember we. Um, you know, we didn't even have any money to buy a brochure, so I had to look around for a printing uh, printing company that would take a $5 deposit and repayments over the next 20 years, you know. To wow. <laughs> well, not as bad as that, but I mean, you know, but to print these brochures. And uh, we found somebody to do that. 21 years ago, the Tamaki brothers established bus tours all over Rotorua, where tourists took in the sights of the geothermal activity attractions. They got to sample the food and experience the cultural performances. And along the way, there have been some memorable bus passengers. We bought uh, a new era and a new dimension, you know, of, um, you know, tour experiences. Yeah. Uh, and back then, uh, I think, you know, we, we really did. We... Um, we pioneered, you know, something uh, extremely new in terms of, you know, how to deliver an entertaining yet educational, uh, you know, tour, um, and and that's what it was. It was it was really full of that. We uh, we were known back then as a as a real Billy T. James like personality and mm. character. It was really funny. I mean, you can we used to pick people up in the day, you know, like we'd have these brochures we bought out that had plenty of sunshine and blue lakes and you know green punga trees everywhere and ferns and bit of steam and bubbling mud, you know, yep. and so people would pay a hundred bucks, you know, and the next day they're standing on the you know side of the footpath waiting for the bus, you know, to come around and pick them up. It'd be pouring with rain and mm. low cloud and no fog, you know, and people can't see nothing. And and so, you know, like, yeah, and you have to, you know, we you know, we'd put these people on the bus and we entertain them eight hours of the day, you know, the whole day 
even though they couldn't see things. But, but they used to get off the bus at the other end and say, hey, God damn, Mike, you know, we didn't see a goddamn thing, man. But, you know, that was the best goddamn tour we've done, you know, since we've been here. You know. So you get those kind of responses. <laughs> and it was awesome, you know. I remember taking, you know, because it's about sight and see, you know, yes. and smell, you know, especially Rotorua. And um, I remember these uh, eight blind people booking on my bus once, you know. And blind people? Yeah, eight of them, you know, from uh, America. And it was so funny because, I mean, I looked at these people and I thought, I mean, how do you do a commentary, you know? Look out the left-hand side, you see Mount Tarawera. Man, these people are not going to see nothing, you know. So be kind of like driving along. It was all quiet for a little moment, you know. So okay, you know. All right, what am I going to talk to you people about? You know, because you can't see nothing. So I just have to pull a bus over on the side of the road, you know, and get them to all get off the bus and, you know, stick their fingers in a hot pool that's about 40 degrees Celsius. Now, that's hot water in it, eh? eh? So they'd feel it, you know, like, oh, shit, you know, that's hot, you know. Oh, that's hot. Yeah, well, that's just, you know, that's geothermal water, you know, that's what it is. So you kind of had to constantly draw pictures in their imagination so they could see things. It was good, you know. And I remember having this old lady on the bus that she comes from England, you know, and she used to come on the bus once a year, every year, and she was an English, you know, uh, um, teacher in the English language, you know, and she was quite refined in terms of how she spoke, you know, and she'd sit in the seat right behind me, you know, and I'd be like, oh, no, here we go, you know, and she'd have this umbrella, and whenever she thought that I wasn't speaking English in the proper, you know, pronunciation. Yes. She poked me right in the back with this umbrella, you know. And I'm like, God, lady, lose your umbrella. What's up with you, you know? Try to enjoy yourself. But it was quite good because uh, on those trips, you know, she really taught me how to, you know, like really speak, get, a, get the message across, really speak well and clear, so, and slow, you know, because the big problem with us Kiwis is we talk too fast. Have you ever sat and watched, you know, like morning news, you know, and... Uh, on TV One, mm. you watch them. You know, we New Zealanders are absolutely disgusting when it comes to talking or speaking English. We talk so fast that that not even the English people understand us. You know, because we talk. Mm. We, we are the fastest talking English um, uh, nation in the world. We are. We are. We speak extremely fast. And the tide is changing. Mike Tamaki has clearly had enough of the hangi and concert tours and realises there's more that can be offered. I'm sick and tired of doing hangi and concerts and dance and singing, you know. Um, been doing that for the last 21 years, song and dance and entertainment, you know. Uh, you know, we might get up on stage, we dance, we sing, we wiggle our ass, you know, <laughs> and people pay us some money, you know. It's like paying monkeys peanuts on stage, you know, and if they want us to dance and sing anymore, throw us some more peanuts and we'll dance and sing some more. Mm. And when you look at it, right around the world, indigenous cultural experiences do exactly the same thing. Like I've visited a lot of them in Africa and throughout Europe and Australia and, you know, uh, in North America. Um, Visited a lot of different cultural experiences. We're all doing the same thing. If you visit an indigenous cultural experience anywhere in the country, uh, anywhere in the world, they pick you up by a coach or whatever, and they take you out, and then and the indigenous people will do a dance, and you'll have a feed, and you know, then you go home, you know, so and a, and a yeah. bit of song, and and it's been repetitious like that for the last 150 years. Well, it's time for change, you know. We're getting a more um, sophisticated, knowledgeable tourist than we've ever had visiting this country. Um, in fact, you know. 
the technology of the internet has uh, internet has really driven people to know a lot more about the destinations that they're going to. They find out a lot more about the culture, the people, the lifestyle. So you get what we what we call the interactive traveller. That's the traveller that wants to come in here and you know and be a lot more proactive, participate in a lot a lot of what we do. So what defines a unique travelling experience for today's tourist? According to Mike Tamaki, the stories of Māori have always been there. You know, a lot of organisations like, you know, uh, Tourism New Zealand or whoever, there may be organisations out there that drive, you know, the tourism industries of their various countries have tried from a very superficial point of view in terms of um, making um, the Indigenous culture a very integral part of a visitor's experience when they arrive here. But they're still really throwing out the same superficial, you know, um, information and, and propaganda and jargon and about, you know, what we have to offer as a people. Yet, you know, the spirit and the attitude, the personality, the character, the essence of a of a region has already been founded. It's already there. It's already been founded by the forefathers who founded those regions. All you got to do is just play up to the tune. You know, mm. that's already the seed that's already been planted. Like, for instance, you know, I remember, let me just give you some examples here, like Northland, for instance, Twin Coast Highway they came up with. Oh, a lot of crap. You know, here's a guy sitting in his seventh blocks, you know, office, you know, um, seven-story office block over in New York, and he's kind of wanted to go on a, a really unique, mystery, you know, uh, mistake, um, educational journey somewhere around the world. And, like, he's going to choose New Zealand. And so he, you know, grabs a whole of a lot of information, most of the stuff that's pumped out there is the stuff that's been circulating around for years and years and years and bloody years, so there's no change, you know. Even all the books and everything are all designed and done the same, so they get a bit boring, you know. And then, so he has a look at the regional um, advertising that, you know, all the various regions are put out there, and, you know, and then he sees the one from Northland, you know, it says Twin Coast Highway. Well, you know, it doesn't say anything about the character and the personality of the place up there. You know, uh, Twin Coast Highway, he might as well go, you know... Um, across to the west coast of America and find the Twin Coast Highway or the Pacific Coast Highway over there. Exactly. And have a ball, you know, and do yeah. something better with better weather and a little bit of culture over there as well. You know, how is that supposed to compete? You know, to me it doesn't. Whereas the essence of that place up in Northland is exactly, you know, uh, what the spirit of it is. I mean, you've got some amazing, fabulous stories up there. You know, for instance, Waitangi, you know, or, or Wai meaning water, Tangi meaning weep, you know, weeping. Mm. It's, a, it's the place of weeping waters. It's the place where an amazing, an amazing um, treaty document was signed that brought together two cultures, two nations, two people to form you know, one country. And, and here's the question to all you people who live up there in, in the north. You know, how many of you really know about Spirits Bay? How many of you really understand the significant, the significant and depth in the fact that we Māori people believe that you know, when we die, our spirit... You know, departs at that point. You know, that's that's the, that's the place of departure. You if you get fully educated with that and have a clear understanding with it, then you take your tourists up there and you stand at Spirits Bay on twilight, and you feel the essence of that place. You can just about see the spirits departing from this world going into the next. That's amazing. That's what the kind of you know interactive experience that people want with who we are as as a people here. Um, you, I mean, for instance, you go um, east coast over there over Gizzy Way, you know. And they're always struggling to find their identity, you know. What did they come up with? First, first to see the light. 
Well, quite frankly, I don't really give a fat rat's backside if you see the light before I do. Let me just tell you something. I'm not an early morning guy. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm kind of glad that you see the light before anybody else. But the significance around what that really all means, the first light, first to see the light, you know, rising from the east, new thing, new day, new dawning. But there's something even more deeper than that. You've got a people over there who are called the Tuhoi people, and everybody knows them as the children of the mist. Look at that. Just that alone is a significant point of difference. That just cries out for me to go there and visit. Who are these children of the mist? What do they do? Uh, who, you know, just exactly why are they called the children of the mist? Go over there to the Uruwera, you know, the, um, the forests that are over there, the Faranaki Forest, and... Uh, Man, it's like turning the clock back in time. You, when you see these amazing warriors on horseback still over there, proud young warriors, I mean, they even speak pigeon English because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they, yeah. they're, so, uh, um, they're so sort of like drenched in their Māori, Māori tanga. And these people over there are the people that are so close to the land. They, the healing purposes that they have over there and just the land itself, when you walk in to the Uruweras, it's like entering into another world. You know, we had a tour that used to, we used to drive a four-wheel drive vehicle over there. We had a young Tuhoi boy that used to be our guide. Actually, he was a big fella. Dreadlocks, had tats all over the place, big beaming smile. And he had two loves, one for the people and one for the land. And I remember me and Doug going out with this guy. And we had two American couple and a pommy couple. And we were kind of heading out there towards the Uruwetas and laughing and joking and carrying on. In fact, I'll tell you who was in the van with us. Ernie Dingo from Australia. Oh, cool. Yeah, and I'll tell you what, though, as soon as we hit the outskirts of that forest, this fella slammed on the brakes, he jumped out, and he did a karakia, like a prayer. And when he jumped back in that vehicle and we drove through that forest, he spiritually interpreted everything away. The forest, the land, the hills, the mountains, the awesome. sky, the land. You got. And I'll tell you what, on the third day of our visit in that forest, he fit all of us into that creation story. When we came out of that place, I tell you what, my, I, we were in another world. We were not even on this planet. And I thought to myself, as we drove away from that, that, that land, that place, and I thought as we drove away from there, my God, this is the essence of this country. We are so missing the point about what the true essence of this country is. You, you know, clean green, yeah. Come on, New Zealand, let's get a little deeper down. Let, let me just ask you a question. When you go to Italy, what do you go over there to see? I mean, apart from seeing the old Michelangelo you know, paintings on the cistern and, and whatever else is over there when you go through Europe. The thing is, when you go to Italy, you go over there to visit the culture, the people, the Italians and how they live, what they eat, you know. When you go to France, you visit the French people, you know, what they eat, their culture, that's what fascinates us. Same with when you go to Hawaii, you know, you go over there to visit, you know, those beautiful young Sheilas on the beach in their, you know, bikinis and stuff. <laughs> no, not really. You should be going over there to visit the Hawaiians, you know, but I mean... Kind of like, you get the point where I'm going? Yeah. When we come to New Zealand here, so what do we come to see, people? What do we come to see? What is the unique essence of what this country is all about? So I, I really started to drive home the fact that, hey, listen, you know, Māori culture can play a lot more integral and significantly deep uh, role in terms of drawing the customer here to New Zealand. Hmm. I mean, let's, let's face it, people, you know... Um, um, you kind of have to, I mean, go figure, what is the unique, iconic sell point of this country as a visitor destination? And I know a lot of you out there will say, oh, you know, it's our scenery, you know, our scenery is so green. beautiful and clean and green. And But hey, listen here, I want to tell you something. I've been around the world and you can find uh, uh, the same kind of scenery that we have in, in New Zealand, uh, only 10 times bigger, 10 times broader and 10 times cleaner. 
just take a trip throughout Europe and you'll find a lot of the scenery they have there is here. Yeah, sure, it is very compact of what we have here. You don't have to travel long distances. But come on, face up to the fact. The fact of the matter is, is that Māori culture has got a lot more to contribute in terms of that unique, iconic sell point. The big question I have to ask here is just how is New Zealand portraying this culture? Is it from a very superficial point of view that we have been doing for the last 150 years? We're going to jump up on stage and wiggle our ass and do some songs and do a bit of dancing on stage mm. and the people walk away totally unaware or still not understanding exactly what the culture or the past or the history, you know, the very makeup or the essence of this country is really all about. And I think that's what we're really missing. In fact, mm. I think every region throughout New Zealand is really missing the essence of what this country is all about. Let's, let's take a look at it. That's what the kind of you know interactive experience that people want with who we are as, as a people here. Mike Tamaki, Nortearoa of Tamaki Tours. And for more information, why not head to our webpage at radionz.co.nz forward slash te ahika. Earlier this week, I attended the launching of the Legal Māori Archive at the Heringawaka Marae at Victoria University here in Wellington. And while there, came across words I had never heard of, such as lexicon and corpus. Which was pretty much the same experience of our next guest, Mamari Stevens, when she started the Māori Legal Archive project a few years back. As universities throughout Aotearoa have become more au fait with students submitting their assignments in English and Te Reo Māori because, hey, there are two official languages of our country. The law lecturer identified that students fluent in Te Reo Māori going through the law faculty needed kupu Māori or Māori words to describe Western law concepts. And so a four-phase project was developed with the outcome being a dictionary of Māori legal terms. But that's a long way off, as Mariah learned when she spoke with Māori Stevens. Now, you're a lecturer up at Victoria University in Wellington, and you've been spearheading a project that's pretty exciting, the Legal Māori Archive. Yes, well, actually the Legal Māori Archive is just the first stage of a bigger project, which is, for want of a better term, because I never seem to work out a more poetic and beautiful name, we've just called the Legal Māori Project. Uh, And the ultimate aim of that project is to facilitate speakers of te reo Māori to be able to use our reo when discussing, in any context, at any time, any place, Western law. Because sometimes we run up against brick walls when we're trying to express ourselves if we may not have access to some of that terminology. Um, some of us do, but many of us, I think, don't. And I was one of those people that was running into brick walls thinking, how do I say, what's the kupu for? And I saw a lot of our students at the law faculty go through some of the same issues and I thought well surely the kupu must be there because Mm. Māori have been engaging with the Western legal system for better or for worse for nearly 200 years Um, 
right back as far as the first translations of the Bible were concerned, where you're having to translate concepts like covenant um, and sovereignty. So um, in view of that past and, and, and knowing somehow there must be lots of documentation out there, I uh, embarked on a, a little bit of a journey of discovery because I didn't know where these things were and found a lot of other people had done a lot of other work to bring out these Māori language texts and there's thousands upon thousands of pages of translated acts, translated bills, translated itereo uh, Māori, that is, um, many uh, parliamentary proceedings recorded in te reo Māori, both from Māori parliaments, like the Kōhtahitanga parliaments of the, 19, of the 19th century, and also the speeches of Māori MPs in te reo Māori in the, in the 19th century. So several thousand, in fact, our archive now consists of 14,000 pages of text. Some of that's actually English because there's translations in there. So, for example, one of our major texts is the Turton's Land Deeds. Many of the relationships between Māori and Pākehā, as far as the purchase and selling of land is concerned, was facilitated in Te Reo Māori, so you'll often have the Māori deed, the Māori language deed, and an English language translation, or alternatively, an English language deed with a Māori language translation. Now, these things are all public documents. They're all in the archive somewhere, at Alexander Turnbull, the Hocken Library, Parliamentary Library, um, but not necessarily very easily accessible to anybody. Um, so in searching for texts to find those words and phrases that um, express those Western legal Māori concepts and Māori understandings of those Western legal, Māori, Western legal concepts, um, a happy byproduct has been the Legal Māori Archive. So that now it's up and running on um, online, thanks to the um, auspices of the New Zealand Electronic Text Centre, who were the folks that put all the effort into digitising these texts, 14,000 pages of them. Um, now anyone can access them and see what our people had to say, you know, in the 19th century, up until about, I think our texts run up to 1909, and then after that... So, so yeah. it runs up to 1909 from... Um, I think the earliest text in there would be... I think we've got some things from the 1830s. It's certainly 1840s, a number of documents from the 1840s and onwards. So if that's 1830s, that's 10 years before the Treaty of Waitangi, yeah. which had terms in it that yes, were used, yep. like Kawanatanga, definitely. Yeah. So there's some there's some there's a pu- publication in there from the Turton's Land Deeds, um, which records purchase of land between 1815 and I think 1839. I might have got those dates wrong, but that very early those very early land deeds and some of those are in Māori. Māori, are you finding that the terms used back then were largely transliterations, or are they terms that really embrace the concept of what Māori were trying to relay? A lot of that analysis hasn't been done yet because we're so busy gathering the texts. We haven't actually really had time to sit down and read them, but there is a higher proportion of transliterations, but also I think a higher proportion than I would have expected of of terms that are birthed within Te Reo Māori to explain these concepts as well. But I really we need to sit down, and, and that's the next phase actually, is working out, we're gathering these terms together um, or gathering our texts into a big corpus and then analysing our corpus of texts to work out what those legal Māori words and phrases are and then ref- 
working out where the legal meanings actually are, what they actually mean, how, like the word utu, for example, mm. um, which has a traditional notion, but also has taken on a number of layers of meaning pertaining to Western legal ideas, such as cost or price, uh, compensation, for example. So um, that's one of the challenges that lay, lies ahead of us, that comparison or that, 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 that examination over time, how our deal embraces, challenges, holds on to, expands um, these concepts and deals with these concepts in, 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 in our deal. So yeah, it's, it's pretty exciting, but it's mm. going to take a little while for that data to start coming through and for me to be able to say anything really mind-popping <laughs> or eye-popping or mind-blowing. <laughs> Take your pick. <laughs> so that's the second stage of the project and it's actually a four-stage project, isn't it? Yes, there's the corpus. Um, well, the archive is the first stage really because that was the, uh, ironically, it was the easiest one because mm. somebody else was doing all the work for the digitisation. So we've got those 19th century texts together. We're now on the hunt for 20th century texts, which are a little bit harder to find because... In the 20th century, at the turn of the century, or the, the close there too, Crown policy changed. So prior to, that, prior to the turn of the century, um, Crown policy was at various parts of the 19th century to disseminate things i te reo Māori so that the Māori communities would have a certain amount of information about new acts, for example, that were about to be passed. So those acts would be translated into te reo Māori and then sent out to the various Māori communities for comment. Um, also... Um, it was a, a very interesting time for petitions, lots of petitions coming in mm. in, the, in, in Māori language. So, so Māori were engaging with the Crown in Māori, and the Crown had to engage back in Māori. Depended on who the governor was at the time. So, for example, under George Grey, the policy was abandoned, more or less. Under Fitzroy, the policy was quite um, adhered to. So you have this fluctuation in the use of te reo Māori in official language in the, ni- in the 19th century. And... Um, historian Phil Parkinson did a lot of work on this um, so I'm only citing some of the things that he's got to say in the 20th century that all changed with um, basically moving to the policy whereby everything crown, crown proceedings and official proceedings were carried out in English so you get a, a huge drop off in the amount of mighty language sources that is immediately and obviously available however that's not to say that there aren't good texts available, we just don't necessarily know exactly where they are and one of the criteria for our texts is that they have to be printed, which cuts out, that's by, for reasons of cost. Which cuts out people that wrote things. Well, it cuts out hand, uh, handwritten documents. Yeah, it cuts mm. out things like um, some of the minutes from the land courts and what have you that are, that are, that are written, in, because we can't afford to digitise them. They're just too hard to digitise. So that's the only reason. That's the only reason, basically. Mm. It's a cost-based exercise. That will be for the next phase. If we can get more funding to go through and look for handwritten materials, there's a lot more of that. So that's one limitation we had to decide fairly early on. Because <laughs> yeah, because there's all that taonga that, you know, yeah. like my tupuna head mm. and those locked chests that are in our whare tupuna yeah. and uh, all the handwritten. Yeah. So there are limit. we had to set those limits fairly early on because the, we, we have a certain budget to deal with, with these texts, unfortunately. So I look forward to the time we get more funding to deal with handwritten texts specifically. So we're in that phase now of gathering 20th century texts, 21st century texts, because, of course, things have changed in the the 21st century. There are, again, a lot more official proceedings being released in Te Reo Māori. So select committee proceedings in Te Reo Māori from the Māori Affairs Select Committee, which we'll have the chance to compare with Native Affairs Select Committee. What do you mean by being released? Well, they're publicly available in Māori and English. Right. So... um, 
I think that started around about 2005 with the Māori language strategy being put in place. There's a lot more official documentation now available in Te Reo Māori. So there's a bit of a rebirth in that, of that official Māori language that's coming out. So we've got some nice points of comparison with the 19th century that we can make. Yeah, this is said by somebody who's not a linguist, mm-hmm. <laughs> not a lexicographer, and not really a very experienced lawyer either. So <laughs> perfectly qualified. But you know, you must have found that you're learning whole new terms like corpus. Mm, yeah, I didn't know what I didn't know what a corpus was. I, which is well, a body in its simplest form. So a corpus, when you're talking about a corpus of texts, it's a body of texts, and when you pull together a body of texts in the way that we're doing, there are certain characteristics of language that start to emerge and you can then learn a lot more about the language and how it operates. Um, So we're building a corpus of what we call legal Māori texts, so texts that engage with, connect with in some way, Western legal concepts. How did our people in written texts engage with this, in these types of texts engage with these concepts? If we were to collect oral... um, a body of oral, a corpus of oral texts that would tell us something slightly different because written language expresses things in a slightly different way than oral language does. So, yeah, there's. So, what about all those Latin terms that are littered through through legal systems one hundred and one, and well, through anything mm, legal, mens rea, actus yeah. reus. I was addicted. <laughs> I mean, yeah. all of those terms. What about all of those? How how are they translating over? Sometimes it'll be transliterations. Other mm. times, um, uh, sometimes uh, the creation of entirely new phrases to try and express the um, the meaning. Um, the only one I can think of at the moment, which is not a recent, uh, not an old example, but it's a recent example, is uh, it's, an, it's a f- more like jargon, like the, the idea of conflict of interest, mahi kaihuanga. That's a recent example that we've found that emerges from um, some of our uh, parliamentary speakers now. I can't remember. Um, that will be from um, just in the last 2005 to 2006. That phrase has started to emerge. But we don't find that phrase, for example, in 19th century texts at all. So, again, there's lots of analysis yet to be done, and I don't have a lot of results to share with you yet. I will do. <laughs> I'll come back and tell you some more stuff. But, yeah, there's, there's, there's going to be a lot of interesting things to find out, I think, about our language. Potentially it's exciting, though, isn't it, because it mm. sees a revitalisation of what my nanny used to call it all, which mm. is that classic to the old Māori. Mm, mm. Well, we have to look back, mm. you see. What we are finding, we did a pilot project last year, a very small pilot project where we compared some of the texts of um, the speeches of Māori MPs, or, or rather MPs speaking in Māori, in Parliament from 2005 to 2006, and we compared the language of those years with 1901 and 1902, I think, the same type of thing, speeches of Māori MPs in Parliament, and we found there really wasn't as much correlation as we expected between the reo that was being spoken in 2005 and 2006 and the reo that was being spoken in 1901 1902. And um, some of the words would be the same. Whenua Māori, for example, Māori land. It was a very common, because by that stage you'd had a lot of Māori land legislation. Um, Ture for law. Uh, lots of common words, but also many of the phrases emerging in the modern little corpus that we had, our pilot corpus, you just didn't see them to the same extent in the, in the old one. So there's a different type of reo that's being spoken now. 
And I think there's lots of interesting things that will emerge as we explore that a bit further. Because ultimately, the outcome is that you create a dictionary of Māori mm. legal terms. That's the ultimate ga- the ultimate um, goal. Um, at this stage, it'll be two and a half thousand words, two and a half thousand t- terms, I should say, or head words, um, with m- a few more meanings than that, I'd imagine. And um, we want it to be as widely dis- disseminated as possible. Um, and um, used in any context. So before the, tri- the Waitangi Tribunal, within the Māori Land Court, um, in Parliament, you know, we would want that th- those words to be as widely disseminated as possible because the whole point of the exercise is the dissemination of kupu so people can choose to use them mm. or not. If they don't choose to use them, e pai ana tēnā. Ka mate pia e tahi kupu mena kare, um, kare whakamahia. But that's okay. That's how language grows, develops, changes over time but I think the best chance of getting people to speak Māori when dealing with Western law is to provide a terminology. And there are going to be some people, and there have been some people that have sort of said to us, oh, we don't want to engage with the Western, these Western legal ideas. We just want to look at Māori legal ideas and I think yeah, um, but the fact of the matter is and it's a matter of historical and um, linguistic record that Māori have engaged with these ideas and have created a legal language. That's what we think has happened. Māori have created a Māori legal language to express those ideas, and that's our job to, to find out what that language has been. Now, Māori, do you think that this project couldn't have happened any earlier because of kōhana reo, mm. kura kaupapa, mm. and te whare wānanga. Mm. So now you've got to a stage where you're having... You've got students coming through the university systems whose first language is te reo Māori. Yeah. So they do need to have access to this kind of resource. Therefore, it, it couldn't, this couldn't have happened in the 1970s. I agree with that. It's not that the texts weren't there. It's mm. not that the work couldn't have been done because the texts were there and the work could have been done. But there is a certain... The reason this project was born was my seeing as I started my job at the law faculty here at Victoria University was seeing some still only a few but every so often you get Māori students that come through that have been raised in that in that immersion Māori education system and they get to um, university and they still want to utilise te reo Māori to express these ideas and many many times those students won't seek to do that, they won't use, want to use te reo because af- they may be afraid of missing marks or not being able to express themselves very clearly um, and they don't necessarily ne- either know the kupu and um, the policy at Victoria University has all, has been for a long time now that if you want to submit your essays or your assignments or sit your exams in te reo Māori it's possible to do that um, but the policy also requires students to provide their own glossaries so when you're talking about specialist areas or technical areas of language like science, like law, psychology, um, any number of areas that require a specialist list of terms, then it's very hard to put that burden back on the student. Um, so I thought we need to actually stump up, if we can, and assist our people to be able to use that if, if, it's, if, if those terms are problematic or hard to find. And we're lucky, in law we're lucky because these terms have existed for such a long time and we can gather them and find them. In areas like science, I know that it's been a very tough road to actually, in many cases, create new words to express these scientific concepts where those words and phrases and 
the concepts themselves are also new to the reo, whereas I don't think concepts such as land purchase can anymore be said to be new to te reo Māori because it's been happening for a long, long time. So our engagement is a lot older. We've got a lot more resource to call on as far as te reo is concerned. So I think we're lucky. Law's lucky in that respect. In that respect. But, I mean, this project could also lead to lexicon being created for all disciplines. Well, we're Medicine, hoping that we can provide them. And we are certainly not by any means the, the first people to do this. And Tatara Fidi um, has been working in conjunction with a number of um, initiatives, for example, with um, um, Microsoft um, creating um, Kupu for computer usage um, and also science. For, it was another example I mentioned, IT. There's a, there's a lot of uh, other lexicons being developed in specialist fields. There's even... Um, like a dictionary of business terms, for example. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to create a dictionary of terms that have an historical grounding to them so that when you open our dictionary, you'll see usage examples that come from texts. Many of those texts will be from the 19th century. Some will be from the 20th century. But you'll be able to trace the origins of those words back somewhere. There's solid examples that you can look to. So it's it's more describing what Ariel has done rather than being forced into a situation where we have to actually create terms, which is an enormously difficult thing to do. And I take my hat off to the people that I know, such as my sister-in-law, we had Taraki Hawea, who's been involved in those creation of new lexicons um, of te reo Māori. It's a, it's a tricky dog. I wouldn't want to, I don't have the skills to do it myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're lucky to have things to call on. Yeah. But yeah, we're hoping we can provide a, something of a model for creating um, these types of lexicons, these which then move on to the dictionaries themselves. So, if we just think about something more recent, mm. so the recent Whanganui Whanganui debate with the inclusion of the H and the exclusion of it. Mm. I mean, are there any examples of that in the um, in any documents that have been unearthed so far? Yes, there are. Um, there's a couple from the 1830s. I was um, interested in this particularly because there was a report that was released. As you would have been aware, you had Ken Mayer on the programme a few weeks ago talking about this exact same thing. And there was a recent historical report that the Wanganui District Council released um, looking at the, the, the origins of the Wanganui spelling and comparing it to the usage of the Wanganui spelling. And um, while that report made very interesting reading, what concerned me when I read it was that there were no references, well, actually, there was one or two references, but only one or two references, to Māori language sources at all. Mm. Um, instead, most of the quantitative research was based on English language sources. And one of the things we're finding in our project is that according to the language you choose, the way you express yourself may well be very different. And Whanganui is it seems to us, if we run the term Whanganui through our archive, it's actually a very common term compared to Whanganui. Whanganui hardly makes an appearance, but Whanganui is very common in the mid uh, the mid 18th, uh, 19th century. So it's not so much that I don't even know if our conclusions, if, if someone was to do another historical report on the roots of the Whanganui and the Whanganui Words, and just sorry, Mamari, mm. you're talking about the report that was written by the researcher that the Whanganui District Council acquired as evidence supporting yes. their claim yes. that the spelling of um, excluding the H yes. had been going on for 
Yes, years it, and years. Um, this particular report concluded that Wanganui was in fact a, a, an earlier spelling, and that because um, Wangan, uh, the Māori of the area didn't actually usually use the written language at all, and that Wanganui was still a very common usage of the word, even among Māori. That may well be correct. I'm not actually an, an historian, so I don't want to, you know, gainsay somebody else's research. The point that I want to make is that the lack of Māori language resources in preparing that report makes the conclusions a little bit unsafe in my view. And um, uh, for example, this particular researcher looked at the paper's past archive, um, which were the basically um, English language papers with some Māori bits in them, but not the the New Paper Māori archive, which of course gives you a different story. If you enter Whanganui, you find different search results compared to Whanganui. Um, yeah, so... Higher results? Oh, much higher. It's much higher for Whanganui than it is for Whanganui. All I'm saying is that the advent of something like the Legal Māori Archive is very important because um, it gives us a resource to use. And we can no, we can no longer ignore Māori language sources to the way, to the extent that I think we have been in the past. And researchers, no matter who they are, Pākehā, Māori, nor no, no here, um, cannot afford any longer to ignore those types of resources. Because if you do, then you're, I think your historical research is unsafe. And now these online archives make it much more easier. Because our, our archive... In is, terms of access. In terms of access. Our archive, the, newspaper, the Māori newspapers archive that's available online, that's 17,000 pages. Our archive is 14,000 pages. So, you know, it's the second biggest <laughs> archive of Māori language text, which is fantastic. And it's just a great, it's going to be a great, I hope, a great resource. And I look forward to it being used as such. So by making it not so safe, are you saying that it makes the findings inaccurate and therefore gives a uh, an accurate picture? I would say any report. Time? Yeah, I would say any report purporting to make definitive statements about uh, a, a, a piece of Māori language, like a name like Wanganui versus Wanganui, if it does not take into account all the available Māori language sources of that particular time of those then yeah it makes your conclusions a little bit unsafe but like I say I, I, I'm hesitating to <laughs> take an historian to task as a non-historian myself I'm just pointing out that these language resources should never be ignored to the way I think they have been in the past Kia ora, Mamari Stevens Hi, uh, my name is Max Sullivan I'm one of the research assistants at the New Zealand Electronic Tech Centre so, Max, how many of you in the team? There are seven of us, three people that do my job, two people who do programming and technical side of you know, the website, and then two managers. So what's your job? I'm a research assistant, so pretty much I do everything from scanning a book to encoding work to discussing projects with clients. Now when you're talking about encoding work, you're talking about encoding text that then allows it to be transferred onto... The internet. So basically we go from the physical book, we use a subset of XML, which is an internet language. So you've got... It's called Text Encoding Initiative, and it's just a set of rules that allow you to deal with different things you might find in a text and represent them on the screen as they would be in the original. Okay, so 
you get a book and basically that book is photocopied but it's done it's copied by a photocopier that I've never seen before could you describe what that photocopier or the copier what it looks like basically the machine is two cameras digital cameras with good lenses mounted and there's a cradle beneath them and the book sits in such a way that the the spine is not damaged and each camera can look in at one side of the page and the other camera looks at the other side and above it is a set of lights so you can basically take photos of any text up to a certain size. So what size would that be? I think it goes up to about A3 would be the largest. It's it's got quite a big uh, cradle. So say you were copying a A3 type book that has 100 pages in it. How long would that take? You can actually motor through them pretty quickly because... So, So basically you stand there and turn the pages, is that right? Normally we have two people. We have one person that makes sure the book's safe and they turn the pages and the other people the other person operates the computer and you can a hundred page book might take forty minutes once you got going. Oh yeah, that's pretty fast. Yeah the camera takes two cameras taking one side of the text each. Is that <laughs> yep. So is this taking it in colour or in black and white? Um, we do it in colour. Yeah. And you can sort of fix the resolution and all that kind of uh, technical stuff, you can decide how big your image is going to be depending on the format you take the image Because when you go onto um, the website nztec.org which is your website um, often it just has the pages the, the pages text, of the yeah. book So what's different about this project? Well in this case we have we're probably going to end up with about 400 texts online and we have to do a lot of work with the images to have them display on the website as well so we made a decision that we would not display these scans but just display the text from the scans and in in some cases you know it would be lovely to have the scans as well because you have some beautiful beautiful printing but we really didn't have enough time it's yeah, it's basically getting as much as we can out of the amount of time that we have to spend on the project. Okay, so going back to the process, you copy the book and then you send it to encoders. That's right. Who are based offshore. That's right. Is that because there's no one here in New Zealand who can do that work? We use a company in India. But they have quite a lot of experience working with uh, documents and transforming them from a physical book or a scan to a computer file. That's and basically, Max, what they do is they see the text and then they just they just code up the letters. Yeah, they words. just type it out, pretty much. They just type out what's on the page. They add markup that gives you the structure. So when there's a paragraph, they add a little tag to put in a paragraph. When a chapter ends, they do the same. If there's an image, they, they can do pretty much whatever you see in a book. They can represent that. We get the uh, file returned to us and we add in further markup for our website. So we add in the author, the title, publication details, we, and we pretty much 
standardise it so that it's going to work on our website. Um, we add a name markup, so every time there's a, a person's name, you can you add in a markup around that name, and that allows you to then go to another page. And where this person's name is listed, sorry, where this person's name is mentioned in other texts, you can cross-reference them. Yeah, you can navigate to see where they are in other documents. So it kind of links everything up together. Does it give you a headache? Um, yeah, it does sometimes. You need to have you need to take a break. Take a rest, man. <laughs> God, it seems pretty. You know, you're in a whole other world with all the different language, the computer language, and and then like, I mean, has it been? Have there been challenges working with Te Reo Māori? Well, certainly. Um, for me, not having much knowledge at all, I have had, I have had, you know, sometimes where I've had to consult other people about what does this say because we're seeing like things repeated throughout, and. And the way that um, the rules of the encoding work is that sometimes you have like a chapter heading and then further on down you have a subheading. But between the chapter heading and the subheading at the next page, for example, you have another section and you, you want to have a heading on that section as well. So those are ones where we insert them manually, but because I can't read the language, I'm not sure what they're talking about. So that means. So you're not sure how yeah, to like to the, how to describe those. that mm. little passage. So sometimes we maybe that, that could be frustrating. Yeah. So I mean, I could write introduction or section. And that's not what I it could, is. I could use yeah the Maori resources available to add those words in, but maybe that's not what it says, and that's a that's a shame to have something kind of misleading for someone to come along and. You know, maybe it's a really important passage in the document, but I don't, I don't know what it says. So it could be, Max, that this project could possibly have offshoots from it. Yeah. Hey, that you're going to need an equal person to you, but the first language is to do exactly. Māori, that's and you work the, closely together. Yeah. I think that's what we would love to happen, is that people who can read the text could then annotate the text and that way everybody benefits. So the first phase of the project has been launched today and when did you start working on that and how long has it taken? Well I think we've been working on it since last September. That was more of a mm, that was more of a part-time kind of deal like we did bit of work on the project and then other work on other things but certainly this whole year I've been on it full time so we've spent quite a lot of time scanning and quite a lot of time checking I remember for a couple of weeks I was just proofing to make sure everything was encoded correctly um, we aim we aim to have 99.95% accuracy that's pretty impressive it is and you need it to be that way because... Because, you know, it also makes sometimes in books, they're not accurate. Exactly. You know, spellings. Mm. Like if you look at very early um, texts that was written in English and uh, sometimes the way they spelt Māori, Māori names, but I guess it's not really your... It's not our place to um, yeah, you just, correct them. You just put it as it yep. was recorded. 
I mean, quite often you'll see a U and an N have been uh, mixed up. Where it should be a U, it's an N. And so we don't um, correct those kind of errors. We can use tags, just like a sick tag, you know, like you'll see in a letter. It, yeah. If there's, we know it's spelled wrong. Sick. Yeah, yeah, we know it's spelled wrong. But we don't want to change the original. So what about macrons then? Wherever there's a macron, we'll um, represent that, and we can do all the macrons. But but because they don't have them in the original often, and in, in, the, in those times, from in that time period, there weren't. There's not much use of macrons, unfortunately. I'm Maria Rakraku, and I'm talking with Max Sullivan for Te Ahika. We're talking about the Legal Māori project, and Max is working as a research assistant on the project. So your role will continue to you'll continue to do what you've done to date in the next couple of phases coming up. I hope so. We're really depending on uh, Māori to to supply us with documents to work on, and we'd love to keep on going. Um, so, Max, you were saying that your knowledge of Te um, was limited. Mm. I mean, has it increased since you've been working, handling so. these documents every day? Certainly from a, a point of view of visually reading a text, I can, you know, I sort of know that a word always ends in a vowel, whereas I didn't know that before. And the limited uh, letters in the alphabet... You know, I didn't know that before, and but now I do. And often, when you have an English translation, you can read that passage and see the the words which are used there, and then go and read the the original in Maori. And it's been really um, beneficial to have those two resources side by side. And has it spurred you on to learn Te Māori, Max? I think so. Oh, I'd love to. Um, cool. <laughs> Certainly an introductory course would be, you know, the best thing to follow on with us if we're going to be doing more work on the project as well. I mean, as I said before, sometimes we just don't know what a part of the document's about and I can't, at the moment I can't read that and I have to do my best to uh, fill in those gaps. I'm Stuart Yates. I was the, the technical lead on the project. And that's the Legal Māori Archive Project? Yeah, the Legal Māori Archive Project. So you're a New Zealander? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a Kiwi. I was born and raised in Upper Hutt, but um, I've been overseas recently at, at, uh, in the UK. So how, how did you find working on the project? Like, as a speaker, not a speaker of Māori, how was it for you when it came to reading the text? Well, um, I was actually doing a Tadao course um, through, the through, through the university. Um, and initially, of course, I mean, I, I didn't understand anything, but you, you, you rapidly see, um, you know, you, you see the patterns, particularly... The, you know, the titles, some of them are in English and in Maori, and you soon realise, you know, what those mean, and then you pick up those in the running text and it, things like that. And we, um, one of the things we focus on is, is proper names, um, names of people, names of organisations, names of places. And um, the, some of the um, linguistic structures around lists of names that we were covering in our rail course and then I, I could see them in the text and it was made it really easy to find the names and separate the names. Um, it's much easier to find those things in, in Maori than it is in English because in English um, there are lots of different ways of, of listing a, of names with just commas and um, the problem with commas is sometimes you say Stuart Yates and sometimes you say Yates, Stuart 
and the commas also used to separate names. So you can very rapidly end up with a confusing situation where you don't know where one name starts and the other stops. But with, uh, with Rayo, there are some very simple structures that are always uniform and consistent, and it's very easy to separate the names out. So, so what, are those, what are those structures that you're talking about? Um, well, my, my pronunciation isn't up to much, but... <laughs> That's right, I'll work you. No, no, you're cool. <laughs> yeah, obviously, working with the, the, uh, the, the written text exclusively, I found it helped my, uh, my reading and maybe my writing, but it didn't do anything for my pronunciation. <laughs> so my pronunciation is uh, still pretty dodge. <laughs> Um, today is the launching of the first phase of the project. It's a four-phase project, and they're hoping to have a dictionary ready for publication around June of 2011. Yep. So, two years' time, you would all be on to it. Well, yeah, but, but probably, yeah. Yeah, I'm hoping so. Um, pronunciation will be sweet. Well, it's one of those things that I hardly ever get to use the... I, I use the, the, the written and the, uh, the reading much more than the spoken. So naturally my, my, my reading and my writing improves much more than my spoken. Um, only at events like this do I actually get to engage with people in a, in a spoken way and then my spoken's so bad I, I wimp out usually. <laughs> so I'm talking with Mary Boyce and we're at the first stage launch of the Māori Legal Project. <laughs> So what is a corpus lexicon? Well, a, a corpus, first of all, is a body or a large collection of language that you, comp you design and compile for a particular purpose, usually to research that language or the, an aspect of a language. So the legal Māori corpus is a collection, a large collection of texts in Māori with legal... Um, designed for legal purposes, if you like. So there are things like Acts of Parliament and legislation and land court records. So these are naturally occurring language in Māori used for those purposes at the time that they were produced. So what's lexicon? A lexicon is a word list that you derive from any language. So the head words in a dictionary, you know the words that you look up in a dictionary, all of those are part of the lexicon or vocabulary or words of a language. So if you had a lexicon of cookery terms, it would have things like braise and fry and roast and all the ingredients. It would be a lexicon of cookery terms. A lexicon of legal terms in English would have things like arrest, judge, you know, crime, manslaughter, murder you know, a defendant, you know. So is it possible that though the documents that they've been looking at for this project go right back to around 1815, I think they said the earliest document was or the book they were using? Yes. So is it possible that transliterations, and in your expertise, were they more prevalent around about that time or not? I can't give you a firm answer on that because nobody's done that work yet with the with the data that we've got. But there are a lot of translated terms in there. So like tudeh, for example, for law, came into Māori via Tahitian from Hebrew is my understanding. Okay? I think it came from the Torah. Okay? So that's a transliteration that you might not recognise. Korti for court, you know, those sorts of things. There are a lot of transliterations there, but whether they're more prevalent than 
um, indigenous terms, I don't know yet. We might know that towards the end of the project. Mary, you've had some involvement in work like this before, though, haven't you? I mean, your academic career is all based around... Yeah, um, my academic work is in corpus linguistics with Māori language, and I was also involved with the first ever monolingual dictionary to make it to print the dictionary for children, Te Rohia Kimihia, for the immersion um, sector, the immersion education sector. So I've, yeah, I've worked with Māori language and then with dictionaries and with corpus linguistics for quite some time now. So, I mean, as, if we're doing this with legal terms, I mean, we could be doing, what, doing it with Hawaii. We could. Or uh, it could be we could do it with, the start with, of every, anything. We could everything. do it with anything. The corpus that I did for my PhD work was broadcast Māori. So I recorded programmes like yours, the Māori sectors, off-air, transcribed them and made a million-word corpus of broadcast Māori. So that corpus is already there and available. Okay. And I've worked on another corpus of texts written in Māori for children to read that I used when I was working for Huia. And that corpus was uh, a major part of Te Rohia, Kimihia. Yeah. So, yeah, you can do corpora of all sorts of things. Specialised corpora, like this one about legal meanings, or more general corpora. But the impact that can have in terms of the history of Aotearoa is huge. Yeah, it it traces the use of the language. And you can do it um, use before now, like historical use. So, for example, the 19th century texts that they've been talking about today that make up the legal Māori archive... Those texts may show a different pattern of word use from the contemporary texts. Mm. So, you know, your question earlier was about the number of transliterations. It's possible that there were more transliterations mm. used earlier than there are now because there's been a, a process of turning away from transliterating mm. as a way of creating new vocabulary. And um, institutions like Te Tauruwhiri Te Reo Māori have vocab-creating um, task forces, if you like, and, and they deliberately create from within the language rather than borrowing from other languages. Like, you know, it'd be quite neat, eh? You'd be able to trace historical events all through the use of language. That's right. And how the language was evolving or to accommodate certain events. That's right. And things that were happening. Yeah. One interesting project, um, a colleague of mine when I was in the School of Linguistics and Applied Language Studies, he did corpus studies for his PhD, but he looked at the use of Māori words in New Zealand English. Mm-hmm. And he's produced a dictionary of Māori words in New Zealand English and looked at when those words first came into English and also how their meaning has changed over time. So kiwi, a bird... It's not used anywhere near as often in English for the bird. It's used for the people, the kiwi people, or the kiwi dollar, or the kiwi fruit. Um, And I think the kiwi bird ranks fourth in frequency. You'd have to check the stats for that. So you can do all sorts of things with these methods, either within a language or cross-linguistically too, if you want to. It's fascinating, isn't it? Well, I think so. And it's not just with the purpose of producing the dictionary either. No, but most dictionaries nowadays are based on corpus. Um, data, so that you what a corpus is, is it's real language as it's used, either spoken language or written language or a combination of both, so it's not you and I sitting down and deciding that rangatira means this, but we might start there, but then we look at the data that the corpus tells us and we may come up with shades of meaning or new meanings that have never been recorded before in dictionaries 
and we can find that out. So Te Tauruwhiri Te Reo Māori with their wonderful large dictionary, you know, He Pāta Kukupu, they've got a, a huge um, corpus that underlies that, that they base their definitions on and their word senses and meanings. And this is how you can create words, well, Te Reo Kupu Māori, for new things like the internet. That's why well, there have been groups of people who have sat down and, and deliberately created words for some of those those specific domains. Mm. But also, um, like with the kura, you know, the kura kaupapa setting, sometimes when you need a word, you make a word then and there. Mm-hmm. And some of those words live and get recorded and end up in dictionaries and everybody uses and some them. Don't. And some don't. Some <laughs> die. Or some words that were, you know... I mean, there are people who want to bring back a lot of Māori vocabulary that's gone out of, uses, mm. out of usage. Um, but words grow old and die, you know, in languages. So it's a fairly natural process. Um, in a language like Māori that's still under threat from incursion from other languages, I think the process of, lose, of loss is um, a lot more disturbing, if you like, than with a, um, a world language like English that is promiscuous. It takes in words from all sorts of languages and it drops off words when it's sick of them and adds new words quite easily. But that's a language that's being spoken in a whole range of contexts. But a language like Māori has got to be a lot more careful, I think. You know, there are people who are purists and don't want any transliterations in the language, so they might leave them out of their dictionaries, Okay, Um, And then there are others who are realists and think that's a sign of a language that's vibrant and alive. People are wanting new words and they're making them them in a range of ways, either by borrowing them or by creating from within the resources of the language. So that would accommodate, in terms of this archive, the use of Latin terms... Latin legal terms, I guess with, if the word was to be if a Māori word was to be created from that, it would have to take the concept into the, consideration. Yeah, the key thing with this with the Legal Māori project is that we are coming up with a lexicon or word list of Māori words for Western legal concepts. Yeah, yeah. Pākehā linguist Dr Mary Boyce, Max Sullivan and Stuart Yates. Now they're part of the team at the New Zealand Electronic Tech Centre ボーナスアレンチュティアイカ。ワイディオネシオン。ネショナル。あ、ナイラ、アママリスティヴンズ、ミテファカトウキ。あ、テナクエ、ヘリティネイノテラロア。あ、キトトコパパノアヒパラ
archival recordings we play on our show is sourced from Nga Taonga Kōrero. And it's Barry Hartley, one of the more seasoned studio operators who's based in Auckland, who collates them for us. Well, Barry is retiring this week. Nō reira e te matua tēnei te mihiatu kia koe, nau anō e rapua i ngā taonga tukuiho. And next week it's rodeo time. Justin and I hung out with some cowboys in fielding a while back. And well, I can see why it's an addictive sport. That's right, Mariah. We with the church and the halifanau. <laughs> E mihi tēnei, ki nga kai kōrero i tēnei wiki, kia Mike Tāmaki, kia koe Mamari Stevens, kia ora. Hoki mai anō a tērā wiki e te iwi, mauri ora tātou katoa. katoa.